It's a great honor to be here this morning. No snow here. Budapest yesterday, it dumped about this much snow. I'm the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Budapest, Hungary. The last time I was here, it was a year ago for the very first time, and uh, I was just blown away by you, by what God's doing here. Just Wednesday night service, just the worship going up. I was just drawn right up into the heavenlies, and uh, it's just so good to be back. I met uh, your pastor about 14 years ago. It was the winter of 92. I was living in a shack, a farm shack, in the back of a house of a family in Subotica, Yugoslavia. And Pete showed up. He was, gonna, he was coming to teach a conference that we were holding there for, for the church. It was freezing cold. I mean, just ice everywhere. You could hear at night the artillery fire going on of the war that had just broken out as Serbia and Croatia began their conflict, the war that eventually ripped Yugoslavia into pieces. I liked Pete right away. I had some, we had some pictures I was going to show of him back in those days, but none of the staff wanted to take any responsibility <laughs> for, me, for me showing these. Pete was a rock star. And he had come with his guitar and his Bible. You know, he was, I just liked him. He seemed energized because he was in this danger zone there with me. And so there was something happened in our, our hearts from that time. And uh, our hearts have been knit together ever since. He had this demo tape with him too. Three songs and a demo tape. He said, hey, check this out. Me and a couple guys from my church back in Albuquerque, we've, we've got a band going. You know, and I listened to it, and it was before the cry had any, any of their stuff out. And uh, uh, these guys actually came over, John, Luke, Eve, Pete. They, they returned every year for years, sometimes twice a year. And uh, they basically helped, through outreach, start the first six or seven of the 18 churches that we've now planted just in Hungary alone. Um, You know, not, not to mention the churches down in Yugoslavia and in these places. Um, actually, the, the church I'm presently pastoring, the Lord has blessed it to the point where there's over 1,200 people now in attendance. And uh, the church started about 11 years ago with an outreach in the eastern train station of Budapest with Pete, Pete and the boys. And so we've got a, we've got a history, a, a friendship that's, that's, that's wonderful. And it's, it's just a great honor to start the year 2006 here with you in the church here. If you could open your Bibles, please, to the little book of Ezra. If you don't know how to find it, go to the table of contents. <laughs> Ezra chapter 3 this morning, we're going to look at some things here. And in the book of Ezra, what we see is God is bringing Judah back from captivity to rebuild the ruins of their lives. That's what's going on here. God's people had ruined their own lives. That's the short version. You can get the long version and all the details in the book of First and Second Kings sometimes. But Judah had ignored their prophets, Elijah, Elisha, the prophet Isaiah, Jeremiah, pleading with them. 
you know, not to be involved in the outrageously blasphemous and perverted practices of the nations that surrounded Israel. Judah ignored and over time slid further and further away from God. God who loved Judah. God who had raised Judah up. God who had great and amazing plans for his people. And they had made a great mess out of their lives. This is possible. That God's people could make a mess of things. And God warned them about something that finally happened. It it came to a point where God allowed their enemies to come in and to carry them away into captivity. And what God was doing was basically saying to them, if you want to turn your back upon me and live life without me, I'll let you experience what that's like. If you want to see what your idols can do for you, your empty idols, then go for it. Check it out. Here's what they can do. And Nebuchadnezzar, the the, the ruling world power of that time, the king of Babylon, God allowed him to come in and carry Judah away captive into Babylon. From Jerusalem, their home, far, far away, they were carried away into a foreign place, a long, long way away from home. But did God forsake his people? Does God ever forsake his people? I love the, 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 I love the, the, the force behind what Jesus said to his people. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But in the original language, the force of it is, I will never, ever, ever leave you nor forsake you. God did not leave his people. He never leaves his people. Even while they were in their captivity, Ezekiel the priest, we call him Ezekiel the prophet, he was a priest who God used to bring his word to his people. He was in the captivity with Judah. God was there even in captivity. Even in this time of discipline and spanking, God was there speaking to his people. This is how committed God is to finish the work he started. You see, for God will chasten His people. And His chastening is for our benefit, you see. C.S. Lewis describes this work. This, and sometimes it can be very severe. He describes it as God's severe mercy. God allowing them to be carried off captive. God chastens those He loves, the Scripture tells us. Hebrews 12.5 You've forgotten the exhortation that speaks to you as unto sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens, and He scourges every son whom He receives. I remember reading this as a young Christian, and I realized in, upon meditation in this verse that God loves me dearly. He, he, because I'd experienced much chastening from God. Oh, how He loves me. Oh... But you know, God's chastening doesn't last forever. God will spank His children to accomplish something for their benefit. And just as as God said to them before the captivity, He had told them even before they went in that there would be a a season of 70 years. The prophet had spoken. A 70-year time of chasing. And yet there would come this time of return. And this time came. And this is what we see 
when you come to the book of Ezra, God is bringing Judah back, listen, to rebuild their lives and their relationship with God that they themselves had ruined. I love this. I love the mercies of God. I love the commitment of God to His covenants. And some of the, in these things this morning that we are going to look at, we're going to look at some things as these people are on the, on the path back. They're, 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 they're in the process of being restored. Because there's some of you here this morning that have pretty much ruined things. Some of you have. And you might be sitting here and you might have been thinking lately, how can I get back? And your mind is an open battlefield. The wall has been broken down. Ezra chapter 3 is for you. There's others of you that are sitting here that are on the verge of going over a cliff of foolishness, of wasting of precious time. And there's some of you here, also Ezra chapter 3 will speak to you, that you just desire to stay on track. There's some things that we see here, if applied in your life, will keep you from the rubble, will keep you from the ruins, you see. And so I believe God wants to speak to each of us this morning. Just an interesting note, the journey back that you can read about in chapters 1 and 2, it's, it's, it's a, it was a long journey, a four-month journey over... 1,000 miles back. I just saw that movie, The March of the Penguins. Man, the persistence, the commitment. And it kind of reminded me of this. this there's a long, there might be a long way back. You might have gotten yourselves into a position that's so messed up. But there's no other way to go. It, it, we, we have one way to go, and that's back to all that God is waiting for in our lives. So we pick up this story. Almost 50,000 of Judah have returned after 70 years in captivity. And they've come back to an absolutely ruined city. The walls around Jerusalem are in rubble. The temple has been completely demolished. And this is where we pick up. In Ezra chapter 3, verse 1, it says, In the seventh month, when the seventh month had come, the children of Israel were in the cities, and the people gathered together, it says, as one man to Jerusalem. Now the seventh month in Israel was the same as what, what we know as September, October. It was a month of three great feasts, festivals, if you would. Times of the nation gathering together. The Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Day of Atonement were all in the seventh month. It was, a, it was a month of great fellowship. And at this and in this month of great fellowship, it says here, as they're back in the land, the ruins are all around them. They gathered together as one man. Notice that. They gathered together as one man. We see here that a ruined life is first, the first step in, in coming back is to get back into fellowship. To stay on track is to keep yourself in the fellowship of God's people. Maybe some of you have been drifting away from that fellowship. Oh, how important it is. It says in Hebrews 10.24, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking 
the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and much more as you see the day approaching. God has not designed you and I to be alone. It's like he goes out of his way in Scripture to illustrate to us the importance of being connected in the body of Christ. He likens the church to a body of which we are all members and and that we're to be connected up. In another place in Peter, Peter describes it as a, a house. And we're like living stones. We're these bricks that are to be mortared together. You see, a house in which God will inhabit. And so how important it is, even in a church like this, especially in a church like this. This is a large church, very large church. How important it is, I believe, in a church like this to be involved in even a smaller group within the church. This is something you might consider in the new year. You see, you need to be in a place in the body where you can find a connection. This is vital in maintaining your walk with the Lord and the things He wants to do in and through your life. If if you're coming back, this is one of the first things that needs to happen. You need to get back and connect it. And there's so many opportunities, whether it's home fellowships. You know, I love this thing you have going here, Net Calvary. I've got my staff in Budapest looking at it and studying it. And I've told the guys, I want you to get something like this set up. You know, because our church now it's 1,200. It's, you know, half of one of your services, but it's... It's, 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 it's a big group. I don't know half the people anymore. And it's so important that we've got a smaller group setting, I believe, inside the larger church setting to be connected. In our church in Budapest now, there's some, we counted some 35 ministries that are connected to the hub of the church. This is exciting to me. Ministries organized People coming together to serve and meet the needs of other people. That excites me. But you know there's something else about these ministries that excites me just as much? It excites me that the people that are involved in those ministries have connection with each other. They know each other. They pray together. They serve together. When something comes up in life, there's others there that know them, that they have a continuity with them. We have a gospel choir. It's a rocking gospel choir. It's an amazing thing. It's our greatest outreach to the city. We just came just two weeks ago. We let, my wife and I left as we finished our sixth concert. Of, we had six consecutive concerts, sold 2,400 seats. Half the group was, half the people at the concert were, not, were non-Christians. You know, it's 110 people in this choir. Just God's using it to draw the city into the church. We're planning a tour through Italy in the spring. We're thinking possibly the year after coming through a tour in the United States. Maybe Pete will invite us here. Hint, hint. <laughs> but I told the, our choir director, his name's Mark Zeman. You might have heard him. He's a piano man, an amazing pianist. That he's, God has brought him over, and he's, he's an amazing choir director as well. I told him, I said, Mark, you're the pastor of these people, these 110. I want, you to, I, want, I want you to treat them as a small church. And it's amazing to see what happens, the interaction, the connection. 
the ministry to one another that happens in this choir. You see? And it's exciting. We have another ministry called Table 22 out of Matthew 22 where Jesus said, go into the highways and the byways and compel them to fill my house. It's a ministry that goes out to the areas of Budapest where the prostitutes stand and wait for the business. And I see these people involved in this ministry as they prepare the sandwiches and the cappuccino that they take out to these gals as they take it out in the love of Jesus Christ. These, they, they know each other. They're connected as they're serving the Lord together. And you can just see the vibrancy and the health in these believers. If you're not connected, please pray about becoming connected this year in the body. You'll see your spiritual life take off. So step one, back from the ruins. Get back into that connectedness. Verse 2, it says, And then Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and his brethren arose, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings upon it, as it's written in the law of Moses. So here, the next thing that they did, as they came together, they started at the very center of their community life, the very center of their spiritual life. They started with the innermost part, the altar of God, which represents the place where you meet with God. The altar was the place where man would meet with God. And they would come with the the blood of the sacrifice, you see, to this place. They, They didn't come to meet with God based upon their own merits. But here they come to rebuild this altar unto the Lord, this meeting place with God. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. To rebuild a ruined life, to maintain your walk with the Lord, we've got to get back to the altar, to the place where we're meeting with God. Maybe this last year you've been overcome with busyness. And that altar, that place of meeting with God in your life has been neglected. Oh, how important that we have times where we meet with the Lord, where we just sit in His presence, where we realize, I don't come based upon my own righteousness, for I have none. But I come through the blood of the sacrifice, the blood of the Lamb of God. God's beckoning to you this new year. Come, erect the altar, rebuild the altar. And watch me rebuild your life. Watch me energize your faith in this new year. The Lord waits for you. Do you realize that? It says in Isaiah, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. God's waiting. For what? To lecture you? To point out all your faults? He waits to be gracious to you, it says in Isaiah. He waits especially for those that may have messed up their lives. You can read it in Isaiah 30, starting in verse 18. Verse 3, we go on to the next step that we see in their process of being restored. It says, Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases and they offered the burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening offerings. Notice this. Though fear had come upon them. They went ahead and they set the altar upon its bases and they offered the burnt offering unto the Lord. 
But you have to realize, these people have come back to ruins. And that might be where you're at this morning, I don't know. But ruins means the wall is broken down. It means the enemy has this access that he should never have had, but he does have. And it's hard because fears can come up easily, perhaps, in your heart. Many people allow their feelings to dictate their actions. This is what defines childishness. We are called to leave the childishness and to grow up, you see. An adult lives not based upon his feelings, but upon what he knows is right. Whether you feel good or you feel bad, you see. In relationships, many have, who have failed are, are paralyzed with shame. They're paralyzed with guilt. Many can't move forward because of this constant looking back, even with regret, to the past. Oh, why did I do that? Oh, I'm, I'm so unworthy and all. And this is especially difficult for those that perhaps have experienced ruin because of your own sin. When the walls are broken down, there is this susceptibility to fear. And it says, though they had this fear because of the enemies, and there was no wall at this point. The wall's coming, folks. In the next book, the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah's on the way. The wall will be rebuilt. The walls of protection, those precious walls that God seeks to build in our lives. The walls are coming. But at this point, there's no walls. There's this susceptibility to fear. And many times when people have wrecked their lives through their own sin, the wall is down. And there's this fear, there's this susceptibility to, to very great psychological struggle at times. There's this susceptibility to the voice of the enemy. And it can be tormenting. And though they had this fear, it says, because of the people of the countries, they went ahead and they did what they know that God wanted them to do, to set the altar upon its bases and to offer the burnt offerings. They went ahead and they worshipped the Lord. The offering of the sacrifice is the picture of worship. They went ahead and worshipped, though they didn't feel good, though there was still this fear that was, you know, toying in their mind. They went ahead and did it, in spite of the enemy's accusations, perhaps. There's a great illustration of going for it in spite of opposition. I love it in Genesis chapter 15. You can turn there or just listen. But in Genesis 15, God is, has given Abraham a great and precious promise. And Abraham said to the Lord in verse 8, Oh, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? I love the humanness of that question. God didn't say, Abraham, you have no faith. Abraham, name it and claim it. Abraham said, how will I know, Lord? This is a precious thing. How can I be sure? How can I have assurance? And the Lord said, bring me a three-year-old heifer and all these, and you can read the verse there, these animals. And he describes to him, he says, bring me a sacrifice. Come to me, Abraham, and worship. And as you come and worship in my presence, I will give you assurance of my promise. The importance of worship in our lives. You see, God desires to give us assurance of His Word to us. But that happens as we're in His presence. 
The Word of God and the presence of God brings the assurance of God in our hearts. An assured believer is a believer that's ready to move forward into all those good things that God has prepared in advance that we should walk in them, you see. And so Abraham says, Oh God, how will I know? Bring me the sacrifice, Abraham. Worship me, Abraham. And, it, and you can read there in Genesis, he set the worship in order. He set the sacrifice in its place. And it says there, as Abraham was in the process of this worship, the fowls of the air came down upon the sacrifice. Genesis 15, verse 11. The fowls of the air, the birds of the air, the vultures. Now in Scripture, these birds of the air, these fowls of the air, they're a picture of the enemy. Jesus even talked about it in one of his parables. Here, Abraham is opening up, wanting assurance, coming before God in worship. And it's just like the enemy to come in, to seek to distract that worship because he knows what will happen to a worshiping church. He knows what will happen to a believer who takes the promises of God into the presence of God in worship. That believer will be assured. That believer will be filled with assurance from God and will begin to move and expect great things from God. And so here comes the vultures down. But I love what Abraham did here. This old man got up. I pictured him, pictured him with his cane or whatever, you know. And it says, and he drove away those birds. I love that. He didn't just sit there and go, oh, this is such a mess. Why is it always raining on me? You know, he wasn't like Eeyore and from Winnie the Pooh. Oh, me, oh, my. You know, he gets up and he says, Get out of here, you birds. I'm going to worship the Lord. He didn't look at it and say, You know, things are so messed up. This can't happen, you know. Just forget it all. I don't feel, it doesn't feel good. Everything's not going smoothly. No, he got up and he drove away these birds. He, what he says is, I will worship the Lord. Worship will bring a great spiritual breakthrough. The enemy hates the worshiping believer because of that assurance. Oh, but I've messed things up, Pastor. And the enemy's like those birds. Just, he just comes down every time I set my heart towards worship. Well, get up like old Abraham and say, Get out of here in the name of Jesus Christ. Get out of here. I'm going to worship the Lord. Oh, but God is not with me. I'm not worthy, you know, I've failed. Isn't it interesting how when we find ourselves failing, you know, and James says we all stumble in many ways, but we are shocked every time we stumble. And James says, no, we all stumble in many ways. But then I stumble and I'm shocked. I'm not supposed to have weakness. But all have sinned and everyone presently is falling short of the glory of God. Oh, I know that's what the Bible says, but I can't handle it that I'm not perfect. You see? And we start, this battle starts in our mind. I can't go to Jesus right now with all of my struggle. I can't go to the Savior of sinners because I'm struggling with sin in my heart. Isn't that ridiculous? Why did Jesus come? Who did He come for? Did He come for good boys and good girls? Which there are none. No, He came for you. He came for me. For who we really are with our struggles, you see. This is the time we need to come the most when we feel that struggle. But there's a battle that goes on and it goes on in the mind. 
And the enemy wants you to think that God is against you. Anyone ever experienced that? Read Romans chapter 8 sometimes. Start in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who, he who didn't spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He that condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen from the dead and He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. As Paul wrote these words to the Romans, he understood that there will be one who is against us. He's called the enemy. There will be one. And he knew that one of the enemy's tactics was to convince you that it's God that's against you. So Paul asked the question, who is it that's against us? Us weak and struggling ones. Us who have to say like Paul, in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. The enemy knew that if he could convince us it's God, that he would paralyze us in our tracks. And so Paul asked the question, who is against us? It's not God. It's not the Father. Well, maybe Jesus is. No. Jesus is the one who died for your sins, who's risen from the dead, and right now He's interceding for you in all of your frailty. We have a high priest who's touched with the feelings of our weaknesses. He was tempted in every point like we are, yet without sin. And therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we can find mercy and help in our time of need. You see, there will be, there will be the accusations. There will be the heaping on in your mind of condemnation. But Paul writes and says, know this, it's not God the Father, it's not God the Son. There is an enemy. Now get up like Abraham. Drive him off. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and God will draw near to you. He's interceding for you right now with all of your weakness. Maybe you've found yourself drifting from some of these things. It's time, I believe, to get back. And they also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, it says, as it is written, and they offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day, Ezra 3.4. And afterwards, they, called, they offered the regular burnt offerings, the new moon, they did the new moons, the appointed feasts. In other words, they returned to their regular service of God. That's what all that means. Their, service, their serving the Lord became a daily part of their lives again. That's what he's saying here. This was the next thing that happened as they were in this process of being restored from the ruins. Is there a daily, is a daily part of your life some type of service to the Lord? How important that is that we have that daily service to the Lord. But this can be hard if we've messed up. Think of Peter. I love Peter. He's one of my favorites in Scripture. Because so I look at Peter and I think if God could work in him and then work through him, there's hope for me. Peter messed up really bad. Sometimes we don't realize how bad it was. He denied the Lord three times. He went back to his old life. 
went back to fishing. Remember that? I mean, you're talking deep disappointment, deep despair, deep failure. He thought he was at the end of any ministry possibility. That's what he's doing back on the boat, fishing again. He's like, I don't, I don't know what all that was those last three years. There's no hope for me. I'm a failure. You see, Peter had this standard in his brain that was this high, and he failed his own standard. He was the one that says, oh, all these other guys might mess up, but not me. And then he's the one who messed up bigger than all of them. You see, Peter thought he was at the end of these possibilities for ministry, but he was actually just at the beginning. Failure, brokenness can prepare a person for a more effective ministry than anything else. When someone experiences their own weakness, when they realize, I can't do it. When, they come to, when we come to the end of ourselves, we don't come to the end. We come to the beginning of God, you see. And the, the ministry possibilities for Peter were just now be, at, at, at their opening, at their beginning. It wasn't the end of anything. God uses broken vessels. Broken vessels are more compassionate vessels. Broken vessels are gracious vessels. There's a gentleness in the broken vessel. Yes, you'll be more humble. Yes, you'll be more kind to people. No, you won't be able to put legalistic trips on people. But guess what, folks? That's not what God's wanting us to be doing. But that's what a lot of people do that still have all of that self-energy going on, all of that self-confidence. God is wanting us to get back in our regular service to Him. And because you failed doesn't mean you're disqualified. God will use you in brokenness to preach the gospel of grace. You might not have to be able to lift your head high and beat your chest and have this pride exuding from you, but God will use you in a broken way. And He'll use you in a powerful way to touch lives in a greater way than you've ever known. And so here they they got back now into this regular service of God. And it says, And from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer the burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. And they also gave money to the masons and carpenters and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon and all. So here's this final thing I want to look at. Because after this, we're going to see that the foundation of the temple was laid and that people responded with songs of praise. But here, they gave of their resources. I believe this is a vital part. We're not going to pass around an offering bag right now. I'm not going to ask you for mission support. That's not where this is leading. There are believers that are withering away because they're not allowing that which God is pouring into them to flow through them. And I'm talking about more than money here this morning. God wants to pour His love upon you like you've never known. And He wants that love to pour right through you to other people. He wants to pour grace out upon you in measures that you've never experienced before. And He wants that to flow right through you to touch other people around you. 
This is, the, this is the life that God calls us to. It's a life where the rivers of living waters are flowing right on through our lives. But many people have this miser type of a life. And it's really a lack of faith in God. You see, God wants us to become a giving people. A people that receive of the Lord and we give out from the Lord. And this is actually part of a restoration process of someone whose life has been ruined. This is something that will keep you living and vibrant in your walk with God. The two bodies of water that you find in Israel besides the Mediterranean Sea, the Dead Sea, the Sea of Galilee, illustrate this in an interesting way. The Sea of Galilee is living. The Sea of Galilee is teeming with many different types of fish and, and life. Human beings, you know, eat of the fruit of that sea. The Sea of Galilee has an, an inflow coming down from Jordan, from the, down from Jor- Jordan, coming down in the river, and it also has an outlet going out. The difference between these bodies, the Dead Sea being dead, I don't have to explain that, nothing living. The Dead Sea has an inlet coming in, but there's no outlet going anywhere. And it's a dead body. God wants to flow His life into us, and He wants it to be pouring right on through us. And you can read on in this chapter, and you can see that as they came together, they got this meeting place of God back in order. They offered their worship to the Lord in spite of the the opposition that was lurching in the shadows. They got back into their service to God and they began to give. They began to let it flow through their lives. They saw their lives begin to rise up from the ruins. There's some principles here I believe God wants us to take into this new year. And they sang responsively, verse 11, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for His mercy endures forever. God, the Savior of sinners, is here this morning. His mercies endure forever to us. He's here wanting to bring forth from your heart this responsive song of praise to His goodness as He keeps you from ruin, as He brings those of you back that have experienced the ruin of your own lives. Happy New Year. May you take these things with you. May we see God's good plans fulfilled in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your goodness, Lord. We thank You for Your work with Judah. God, we pray that You would speak to each of our hearts concerning these things, that You would continue to strengthen this body, each individual person, for Your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.